there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Your Politics podcast from RTE News. I'm Sandra Hurley and I'm joined by the Minister for Health and Fianna Fáil Deputy Stephen Donnelly. Welcome. Thank you very much, Sandra. Delighted to be here. And RTE's political correspondent, Paul Cunningham. Why, lovely to be here in a dark room on a sunny day. Yes, we're down in the bunker once again. So, uh, Minister, I've done some exhaustive research in advance of this encounter and I found out that you have a black belt in Taekwondo. And not only that, you said that it was really useful when you were younger because you got into a lot of fights. Ah, well, I have to be conscious that I've got three young boys (laughs) (laughs) Um, who've asked me similar questions. Um, I do have a black belt. Uh, I uh, Master Ken Wheatley was my instructor for many years and he was a phenomenal, still is, he, he's teaching, teaches in Wicklow, an absolutely phenomenal instructor for many, many years. And, do you know, it was, it's mainly useful. I, I'd be a strong advocate of anyone doing, well, any sports, obviously, but boxing, martial arts, those things, um, they're, first of all, they'll get you really fit. But the most, the, the most useful thing they do is they keep people out of fights, right? Because if you're getting knocked around three days or four days a week in a gym or, you know, in your, in your club or in a boxing ring, uh, there's, no, there's no goo on you to go outside and pick fights with anybody else in the, in the first instance. And then when, as is inevitable, you get started on, you know, in a, sitting in a bar or... Uh, in Bondi Beach on a on a uh, on a bus full of very angry people, um, it gives you you're, you can you know you're used to you're used to combat and so, so you, you can you stay out it. of it. In- and then yeah, oh, so occasionally when you actually do end up when when there, when you've no choice when there's nothing left but to defend yourself, yeah, it can it can it 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 was useful. Uh, so m- many a, years as a, ago, in as a younger man. But let me tell you, there was a, there was a long time ago. My, okay. my, my martial arts skills past. are Which pretty pretty rusty. Is, is this one where you're flipping koshas or you got big sticks or what are you doing? No, taekwondo. So taekwondo is Korean. For those who don't know, so it's a Korean martial art, quite like karate. In uh, Korean, taekwondo means way of uh, way of the hand, uh, way of the fist, and way of the foot. So a lot of kicking, a lot of punching. Uh, no grappling, none of that, none of the stuff on the ground. None so of the judo stuff, okay. No, no judo, um, none of that, none of the tai chi stuff. It's to all intents and purposes, it's 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 like a form of karate. The okay. purists would say no, that whatever, yep. but yes, I would h- highly highly encourage anyone and indeed any parents to have their have their kids look at it. Okay, very good. Well, moving on to the politics, I guess. Here's a brief version of your political CV. You were elected to the Dáil in 2011 as an independent. You co-founded the Social Democrats in 2015. You all later fell out. You left. And then you went on to join Fianna Fáil. Three years later, you became Minister for Health. So you've done the rounds. And it was pretty expedient, wasn't it, in the end, you joining Fianna Fáil? Because, look, you became a minister when there was very few jobs going. It doesn't feel very expedient. It was quite a circuitous route. Uh, yeah, it was independent. That was the route in. I decided in um, in in December 2010, I wanted to help. I wanted to get involved. I'd had the great privilege of learning economics that's useful when the IMF come into a country. 
And actually, my my wife, Susan, and I were looking at moving to Johannesburg at the time. I wanted to work with sub-Saharan African countries uh, on institution building. Um, and Susan was is an academic and was looking at women empowerment programs and, and, and various other things. And then the IMF arrived here, so I decided I'd get involved here. Um, I'd never been involved in politics. I didn't know any politicians. I'd never been at a political meeting. Uh, I'd marched against Tony Blair's war when I was living in London. Uh, the, the invasion of Iraq. So I really had no idea what I was doing. So anyway, so I ran a campaign and uh, and, and somehow got elected. Uh, it was about a five-week campaign and got in. Uh, worked hard as an independent. And I have great respect for independence. It's a really difficult place to be because you don't have the support of the parties. But I think the thing people can't get over is that you excoriated Fianna Fáil back then in 2011 because you would have been criticising their time in government. And, you know, fast forward a few years, you joined the party. Well, I would stand over those criticisms, as, by the way, would the people in Fianna Fáil, right? So I think that I think the, the very honest critics of the policies and the things that went wrong um, are people within Fianna Fáil themselves, right? And I think Michael McGrath put it quite well at the time when he, when he was asked about me joining. Um, he said, you know, Stephen has criticised what happened in the crash. Uh, and Michael said, but sure, isn't that, a, don't, don't we want people involved in the party who are very open about the past and we, you know, we, we, we want to uh, look to the future. And so for me, I was, uh, I was really impressed by people like Micheál Martin. Um, I was actually very impressed with Michael McGrath. So Michael, Michael and I were on the finance committee together. Sean Fleming and I were on the finance committee together. And I had obviously spent years in the Dáil um, in committee, I am a social democrat. That's my politics. Um, Fianna Fáil is a social democratic party. Michal Martin identifies as a, as a social democrat. And what I what I saw in Fianna Fáil is a group of women and men who uh, believe passionately in their country and in helping people. It's a broadly uh, social democratic approach, and critically, a group of people who are serious about government. Who, who who I believed were serious so about going into So are you saying that government. the Social Democrats weren't? Because that is one of the criticisms that other parties always levy, levy at them, that perhaps they don't want to go into government at the moment. There were, there were many reasons why uh, that was not the right place for me to be. But yes, w- one of them was, I think actually, as the Thornish said in Leaders' Questions today... Um, among other things. Amongst other, th- amongst <laughs> other things, right? Yeah. But he did make that point that in 2016 and in 2020, there was an opportunity, I, I would say, a, a really important time, both cases, to go in and be in government. I believe if you're going to be in the doll, you should aspire to go into government because that's really where you can help the most number of people. Um, and what I saw in Fianna Fáil was serious people, good people, um, social democratic people with, a, with, a, with an instinct for, for helping people and trying to make things better, Republicans, you know, very passionate and very strong on an all-island Ireland, but by constitutional means. I think mm. that's really important and serious about government. And I, and I have to say, and look, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I do believe uh, when I look at Micheál Martin as Taoiseach, I genuinely believe he's doing a good job. I believed he would be a, a, a great Taoiseach, and I think he is for many people in Ireland, and you can see it in the in, in the polling. Let's come back to Micheál Martin the people, and, people, and his leadership. The people do, you know. And when okay. I look at the likes of Michael McGrath, who I served with on the on the finance committee, 
I think he is an excellent Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. Okay. So, you know, I so think it was all, a, I think all it was a your good colleagues thing. are great then. So, but <laughs> let, let's move on because uh, COVID, of course, you became Minister for Health uh, some months into the pandemic. You must look back at it now and think things got really heated at the time. Things have calmed down now, but at the time you were making those incredibly quick decisions that had really huge impact on people's lives. Yeah, it was it was an extraordinary period of time. Uh, so for me, I was appointed and uh, I had no previous ministerial experience. Um, I had to put a, a team together, special advisors together, but also on my second day or my first day, the secretary general said, well, he was moving to another department. And on the third day, the chief medical officer had to step back for personal reasons for several months and so I found myself on day three, I think on day one or two, I'd had to go in and ask for an extra two billion euro for COVID spending into the convention centre. And I found myself by day three without a secretary general and without a chief medical officer. Now, two excellent people stepped into those roles, but nonetheless, that's, that's quite a lot of change. The whole world was learning about COVID. We had a brief period of calm through June and July, but then it very quickly um, uh stepped up again and Ronan Glynn, Dr. Glynn and myself um, were very much, yes, in the middle of, of responding to, planning for and then responding to these enormous pressures because as we all know, the impact it had on, on families, on individuals, on communities was like nothing we've ever seen. And Paul, do you want to come in there? What do you remember of that time? Um, the first thing is just the very idea that some of the um, decisions that would be taken by government to restrict civil liberties were of such a scale that if you read them in a fiction novel, you wouldn't have believed it. The idea that people would be confined within five kilometres of their home, that the guard that you would be on the streets and checking, and you were likely to face sanction if you were trying to break out of your area. Um, indeed, I was one of those people who, for because of work, was travelling into Dublin city centre on roads that were completely empty. There was no traffic. You know, at rush hour times, it was like deserted. Um, it was an incredible time. Um, and I think looking back at it, you have to give an awful lot of leeway to government because they were taking such monumental decisions and they weren't really having the time to think about all the possible scenarios. They had to take decisions and then try and maybe ameliorate matters as the consequence of those decisions came in. But I'm just wondering from, from your um, position, Minister, there's been now two substantial books on the question of the decisions um, that related to COVID. Mm. And much of them was focused on sort of those interpersonal relationships that you had and the question of whether people trusted you or didn't trust you, whether they felt you were up to the mark or not up to the mark. Um, you said at the time it was last discussed that you hadn't read Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell's book. I'm wondering if you did and even if you hadn't read those books, what's your sense of the, the critique, which is obviously out in the public domain? Yeah, I, I haven't read either of them. Uh, I, I hope to, uh, but... There's, Sorry, Richard Chambers is the other one. Obviously, yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot going on, but I think in in fairness to all of the authors, it is a great. I mean, it's a great achievement to write these books, mm. right? And they put a lot of work into them, and uh, they focused on lots of things. Yeah, right. Um, for me, I think what you what we've got to do is say, well, how did Ireland do, right? So you had a government, as you say, under uh, dealing with you know these these um, unprecedented challenges and, and decision making. What I can say is that broadly on the interpersonal level, it worked well, right? You know, were there tensions between different people involved in the thing be between various departments and cabinet and public health advice and so forth? I mean, of course there were, 
right? People were working 18, 20 hour days, uh, having to make very serious decisions um, and debate stuff. And I, I, I'd be worried if there wasn't kind of robust debate. However, was it, was it professional and was it respectful? I think all around, I'd have to say it was, right? So that's on the, that's on the kind of the, the soap opera bit or the personal bit. But I think the bit that actually matters is how did Ireland do, right? And whilst there was vast suffering and pain and sadly death, and we still, and we're, we're at the start of another COVID wave now, people are still dying of COVID. And people are in, as we sit here now, there's people in intensive care with COVID fighting for their lives, right? So it's still very much here. But if you look how Ireland has done internationally, we are regarded as having done better than most countries in the world. So the Lancet article, for example, shows that our excess mortality is, I think, the second lowest in Europe and one of the lowest in the world. And the reason for that, government played a role in that, obviously, but that wasn't just down to government getting more right than wrong. What, what I think the, the untold story of COVID is for Ireland is a nation working together. Right. I remember talking to Mike Ryan about this, you know, Dr. Mike yeah. Ryan at the WHO. I rang him one day and said, look, can you have you any advice for me? Is there anything I should be looking at in particular countries? And he was reflecting on Ireland and he said, what stands out internationally on Ireland is a government and indeed an opposition broadly, right? Like a political system broadly, broadly working together with challenges there should be. But as well as that, a, a community, like neighbours helping each other, you know, fo Gaelic football teams doing meals on wheels, local soccer clubs. There was an immense solidarity. Like when I, one of the things I spent a lot of time doing Could I was, ask you just, yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt yeah, you there, sorry. but uh, as you mentioned, numbers are rising. Could we go back to more restrictions? Do you think people could actually hack it? I'm not asking you to say, is it definitely going to happen? Mm. But would the population take it? Well, first of all, it's not under consideration. Right. We're in a different phase of COVID. We're in a living with COVID phase. Now, there has been a significant increase of, in cases. We've gone from 167 in hospital just two weeks ago to about 500 right now. It's a huge increase in a short period of time. Is it possible that I might get public health advice through the summer saying, actually, not only do we recommend masks on buses and trains, for example, but the public health advice could be, no, it, it really needs to happen to slow this down. Uh, is that kind of advice possible? It's, uh, it's always possible, but it's not the phase we're in. The phase we're in is advisory personal responsibility. So the advice is still wear the mask and, you know, on, on trains and buses. That's still the advice. It's just not compulsory. The single most important thing that any of us can do is get whatever vaccine we're now eligible for, right? So we know the vaccines work. We know the boosters work. We know there was massive buy-in to the first phases there's been a much lower uptake now. We are at the start of another wave. We've now got 500 patients in hospital with COVID. As that begins to go above, say, 13, 1400, you have to start cancelling scheduled appointments and procedures and operations for other people, which is a huge impact, a really damaging impact on people's health. So my, my ask, I really have one singular ask, is for anyone who is due their second booster, or their first booster, um, or indeed their primary course, please go and get it. I met a lady who was... Who was uh, sorry, I, I need to move on because okay, we have sorry. a few things we need to get through, but I wanted to ask you about the 
Children's Hospital because, of course, it, this was discussed at the Public Accounts Committee this morning. We heard that inflation is adding €51 million euro to the cost of the hospital. It could go higher. And the state is on the hook for any inflation uh, that goes above 4% mm. and it's going way above that. Now, was that a bad contract? Well, even analysis worth saying that the committee members felt that they weren't getting information on time and full information to allow them to evaluate the situation. But Yeah, so I, I've heard the frustration from the committee members and I think that has to be addressed, right? Oireachtas committees must be provided with the information that they ask for in a timely manner uh, and that should always be the case. So if there's issues there, they need to be, they need to be dealt with. We're in a period now of very high inflation, obviously over 4%, and that's going to add significantly to the build cost. We don't know how much yet. I think the chief exec, uh, David, was saying he couldn't give a figure for the rest of the year yet because we don't know exactly what the knock-on is, uh, is going to be. It is expensive, and my views in opposition on this are very clear in terms of it, it was. I don't believe it was set up in the right way, and I don't believe the costs at the, at the start that the, that the process allowed for the cost to be controlled maybe in the way they should have been. Where we're at now is the development board have been given very significant resources to fight and contest uh, claims made by the contractor, of which there are many. Um, there, is a, there is a better process in place between the development board and the contractor in terms of getting this done. What I would say is I actually was out in the hospital last Friday and it is... It is astonishing. But we know it's going to be state-of-the-art. Can you tell us, what is the current estimate for the final bill? Because we haven't had an official estimate for some time. The last official estimate was €1.7 billion, euro, and it's clearly gone way above that. It, that, that. And that's not unintentional. So the, the final cost is, is contested and very strongly contested. The developer has put in a, very significant claims for a lot of money and may well continue to do so and the state is contesting where it believes it should contest. So we're not, we're, we're not putting at this point a final price on it because we don't want that to become a but target. But it's going to go over $2 billion. Would you concede that? Well, let's see. I don't think right now we should contest anything. I think there... Uh, sorry, we should accept, we should accept any... any <laughs> sorry, beg your pardon. That we should accept any final price um, because we have to contest it and we have to keep it as close to the agreed price as possible. Now, there are some very legitimate increases, which are inflation. Right, I mean, they're they are they're baked into the contract, and they and they uh, they should of course be honoured. But Sandra, I, I just want to say, I know you're you're saying you look. We all know it's going to be a great hospital. I just want to say, having been in it in the last few days, it's it's going to completely change and revolutionise children's hospital care in this country. You know, the operating theatres. There's twenty of them, I think, and it's a two hundred and fifty metre long corridor with state of the art. Um, operating theatres off each side. There's hundreds of beds. Every room is en suite. Every room has a huge window, either looking in or, or, or looking out. There's a parent, there's a, a parent's bed in every room. There's several and That acres. is all wonderful, but we just can't seem to contain costs. When we build something in Ireland, it seems to, a giant project like this, it just goes way over budget and way over time. This one has. And, and what we've got to do, and I think what the Development Board have quite successfully been doing um, for quite some time now, is con is containing that cost uh, and contesting a lot of the uh, a lot of the claims from the contractor. They will undoubtedly, by the way, be legitimate claims as well. It's, I don't want to suggest that the contractor is doing anything untoward. I mean, they're putting in claims they believe they're owed, and the development board uh, is fighting those claims where they believe it it, it should be fought. But look, my my views on this uh, at the start of this are yeah are, are are well known. I was highly critical of the way it was set up. 
So can I ask you about Navin Hospital as well? It's been in the news this week and uh, it seemed that the HSE announced earlier this week that the emergency department was to close. It was going to be replaced by a medical assessment unit. But then you came out and said, well, the government hasn't backed that. Mm. But clearly the medical staff, the nursing staff say that it's not safe. So is it a case here that politics is trumping patient safety? Well, that you didn't know. A decision was taken that you didn't know. Well, the decision ultimately is a decision of government. Right. So it's 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 on behalf of government. I, yeah. I, I There is no decision has been sanctioned. And I think that was important uh, that that clarification was made. What we have is clinicians in the hospital in Navin very rightly and correctly saying there are patients coming into us now who it is it is not appropriate for them to come in because Navin simply isn't big enough. And the real fear they have is that there's a lot of bypass protocols in place already for lots of things. Um, people with serious issues and obstetrics and, and people who might need surgery, they all go to Our Lady of Lourdes and Drahden now. The concern, quite rightly, that the clinicians in Navan have is they think there's about five patients a day on average, so say about 2,000 a year, who seem to be stable. They might self-present or they might come in in an ambulance and they seem to be not too bad, but then they get into Navan and they deteriorate very rapidly and actually the, the specialties needed to save their life or to stabilise them are not in Navin, they're in Drada. And they're saying, so this five patients a day, they need to go to Drada for their own safety. Uh, and I take that absolutely seriously. At the same time, I've met with very senior clinicians in Our Lady of Lourdes in Drada, and they have made basically the same argument in the opposite direction. What they've said is, they broadly support the, the, the changes in Navin, the proposed changes in Navin, but they're saying, look, we will now be taking in more people. These are people who will you know, need quite complex care and we in Drada must have the resources to make sure that they get seen on time. Um, I am not yet satisfied that everything that needs to be done has been done as, and is in place because this is, this is not just about one hospital. Really, this is about two hospitals. But it's been dragging on for some time. It's clearly causing difficulties. This has been going on for several months now. It's been going on for several years. So this was first recommended in the small hospitals framework, which was agreed in 2013. But ultimately, government has to be satisfied that we're not simply transferring patient risk from one hospital to another hospital. And so what I've asked the HSE to do is look at all of the resources required in both hospitals. I'll give you one quick example. There was a very good meeting with the Rockless members on Monday. And one of the the issues that the that the local representatives raised, that the TDs and senators raised, was they said, well, you have this medical assessment unit proposed for Navin, really important, 24-7 cover, but it's by GP referral. But many people who live in Meath will tell you that it can take a week, two weeks or longer to get a GP. So they're saying, well, if this is quite, if this is urgent care, you need to be able to show us how we can get GP access quickly to allow the referral to happen. So I believe... Um, that there are outstanding operational issues that have to be looked at. But ultimately, this starts and finishes with what is the safest um, system of care for the patients. So quick last question, Minister, on the cost of living. The ESRI report today showing that 29% of people are in energy poverty and that it's people on lower incomes who are worst off. Do you agree with the government line that nothing should be done until the budget? Well, I agree with the government position, which is that several billion euro worth of um, 
spending has already been put in but place. But it's been eroded. That, that, that's the problem with inflation. It, it's, it, it's, eating, it's being eaten up immediately. It, it, it is being eaten up, but I, I think we need to be clear that there's be already been a multi-billion euro, pa- multi-billion euro package that's already been put in place in healthcare. Uh, what I can tell you, we're doing this here, so I'm trying to reduce the costs of healthcare. We know that there is, a, there is a, an inequality in health outcomes between higher income and lower income families and households in Ireland, and it's something that simply should not exist. So in healthcare, we're reducing the drug payment scheme from 114 to 80 euro. Um, we're bringing in free GP care for six and seven year olds. I'll be, I'll have legislation. But some of those are universal I, measures. I might, I might just, yeah, I might just finish on. on this if I can. Um, I, I'm bringing in legislation shortly to abolish all children's hospital charges for inpatient, not for ED, but for in, inpatient and day case. And then the one that I'm most excited about is in August, we're bringing in for the first time ever free contraception, f- starting with younger women from 17 to 25. Now, what else are we looking at then for next year? I've said previously I'd like to look at adult hospital charges. I would love to see the state funding IVF for the first time. So as we, in healthcare, which is the one I can really talk to in detail, there's a lot of things going on that are going but to quite mo- significantly most reduce of those the things, costs of care. Most of those things that you mentioned are universal measures. The clear push now, the recommendations from the ESRI and other bodies are that measures need to be more targeted. Uh, which I agree with, but if you if you look at the measures that have already been in place, there have been universal measures around uh, around taxes uh, and around um, taxes on petrol and so forth. But there also and the ha- energy rebate. Yeah, yes, and there have also been more targeted measures around additional top ups uh, in terms of fuel allowance and so forth. So I think what but if we if you need- look at it in monetary terms, the universal measures way. Uh, go way past the targeted measures. And that seems to be the clear focus now from the ESRI, from the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. More targeted measures are needed. Would you concede that? So I think targeted measures are needed, but but you can target measures in different ways. So, for example, if we, uh, if we reduce um, VAT and taxes on petrol and diesel, the people you're helping are the people who are most hit by that, people who are in the car, people who are having to commute more often. So you're helping in that way. There have been targeted measures in, in terms of the fuel allowance, and I have no doubt uh, that as part of the budget, government uh, is looking at both universal measures, which are important as well. You know, there's a lot of people on, there's a lot of families now who'd be on, you know, middle-income uh, wages who are really getting squeezed by that as well, and they do need help. They do need help okay. as well. So I think it's I think it's about finding the right balance. Is, it, is a question you were listing off measures which I would imagine you've had to think about, consider, get over the line at cabinet and and implement. But to a certain extent, we're still tinkering around the edges. We still have this two tier health system. We still have incredible waiting lists. We still have monthly David Cullinan, Sinn Féin's health spokesperson, producing stats in relation to over 75s, the amount of time that they're having to wait, particularly in Cork, for over 25 or 26 hours. I know the the HSE will say they may be getting some treatment during that time. It isn't that they're just sitting in a chair waiting, but nonetheless, it's still a shocking state of affairs. And that's at a time where we're spending, what's it, four more billion euro a year on the provision of healthcare. It just seems that... Um, we have, on the one hand, a lot of resources going in and yet stasis and status quo at, at the same time at ground level. I think uh, all of those observations in terms of people waiting too long are absolutely correct, right? And the single biggest priority for government on healthcare, as well as dealing with COVID, obviously, uh, is waiting lists and access to care, right? Getting people access to care quicker. So what are we doing about that? We have invested more, we've added more resources to the public healthcare system in the last two years than any year on record. As an example, um, we've added about 14,000, 15,000 extra, extra 
um, to the workforce. We've added about 850 beds. Now, to put that in context, the 14-year plan was for about 2,400 beds. So in just two years, we've added a third of a 14-year plan, and obviously we're adding several hundred more this year. One of the things that's happening below the radar, but that's really exciting, is we're building up an entire new system of community care. So what do we mean by that? Um, we mean we've got therapists, speech and language, multidisciplinary teams in these 96 community care or healthcare networks, right? So 96 primary care teams. Um, we've got team, new teams in place for older people. We've chronic disease management teams in place to work with the GPs. So what does that all mean? I was talking to a Wicklow GP yesterday morning, and what he said to me was that probably over the last six months now, because it takes time for all of this to kick in, he's really felt things change. So he said where, where before, if one of his patients needed access to diagnostics, he'd have to send them into St. Vincent's or to Lachlanstown. Now he can get it directly himself. Last year, we had 138,000 GP uh, diagnostics. And this year, we're already over about 90,000. If you're saying it takes time, and sorry if I'm cutting across Sandra here, if you're saying it, like, it takes time, it doesn't feel it at the moment. People don't feel it. You're talking about a particular clinician who has the capacity to do something else, but to general public out there who are interfacing with the health care system, I don't think that they're feeling it. So if you are the Minister for Health, when do you think or when can you promise, even at the end of this um, government cycle, that they're actually going to feel a difference? Because the, surely the waiting lists speak for themselves. Well, first of all, we have to have this conversation in the context of a two-year, once-in-a-hundred-year global pandemic, right? Because if that hadn't happened, obviously the waiting lists would be much, much lower than they are now. So we have to remember that that's been going on. We've launched a waiting list action plan for this year, uh, looking for an 18% reduction in those on the waiting list by the end of this year. It'd bring the figures to the lowest level in five years. Now, that's just the first year of it. Obviously, we want to go for, uh, keep, keep moving with that. The plan is to eradicate the waiting lists. So we have a 350 million euro plan for the waiting list action plan. We're building up hospital and community care at the same time. And while I fully agree that for, for far too many people, they're not yet feeling it, actually, for some people, they really are. So, for example, one of my priorities is children who need orthopedic help, scoliosis, spina bifida and others. Um, we funded a 19 million euro plan between uh, Children's Health Ireland and CAPA. And already this year, we've had, a, we've had much more activity in children uh, cared for and operated on than in 2019. It's 30% higher. And our aim is that by the end of this year, no child with scoliosis would be waiting more than four months. I was in Cork two weeks ago. One of the big areas for me is women's health care. And I was visiting a new women's health care centre um, and urogynecology is an area where, you know, there is urgent care needed. Believe it or not, there was a two-year assessment, uh, sorry, a two-year wait just for assessment for urogynecology. Thanks to the amazing people down there and the fact that we're now funding and prioritizing this, that two-year waiting list has dropped to two weeks. So there are really important things happening right across the system. Um, in areas like children's care and gynecology and other areas, but what we're what we're mobilising the entire public healthcare system and indeed the private healthcare system is exactly to what you said, Paul, which is we've hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children waiting. We are succeeding in some of the in some of the some some of the areas. There's so much more to do, but there is a there is a level of focus and a level of investment and a level of resource that's completely new 
to bring these bring these lists down. If I give you just one more example, if I if I may, okay. right? Yeah. One, one, one <laughs> of the, last one. Okay, one of the groups that's really urgent is those who've they've seen the consultant and they're now waiting for a hospital procedure. At the start of this year, there were about seventy five thousand people waiting for that hospital procedure. Um, what we are in the middle of doing is saying anyone who is waiting more than six months, the NTPF will be in touch and they will organise care for you. We're on target. Um, many thousands have now been uh, contacted and the latest advice I have is we're going to be able to bring that down to, to five months and that essentially the vast majority of people who in January of that 75,000 who are waiting for, it, for hospital care by, the, by December the vast majority will have received it. So it's a big, ambitious plan. It is working. It got badly hit, obviously, by the Omicron wave. And one of the things that concerns me about this new wave is, again, what impact is it going to have on people who are waiting too long for care? Okay. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly, thank you for joining us. So, Paul Cunningham, I have a question for you now oh, on no. leaders' questions this morning. It's always pretty tetchy on Thursdays between yes. the Thonish, the Leo Varadkar and Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty, but today it seemed to kind of plunge to a new low. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that when um, the Sinn Féin finance spokesperson, Pierce Doherty, stands up on Thursdays and Leo Varadkar is in the hot seat as opposed to the Taoiseach Michal Martin, that it can get tetchy. And um, it gets particularly touchy when they're talking about the cost of living because they're just simply diametrically opposed. Um, Sinn Féin believes you need to have an immediate budget, you need to take immediate action because people are right now suffering. And you can see from Leo Varadkar's point of view, not me, but you know from what he says, is that the opposition uh, disregards everything that they've done. They've taken more than €2 billion Euro in measures, but that's just simply forgotten about. And he's saying we have taken measures, I'm not ruling out further measures, and we will definitely be doing big stuff in the, um, in the budget in October as well. This was of a completely different order. This was not just personalised, this was bitter. This was bitter exchanges across the Doyle, and I think most people were taken aback by what they saw, by what they heard. And talking to a few TDs afterwards, there was a sense of, you know, that was something they hadn't seen in a long time. It wasn't quite sure just exactly what the outcome of it was. No clear result at the end of it. What you did see was two um, people effectively taken off their coats and going at it uh, in the middle of the street. Um, uh, I'm not sure whether one uh, party leader I was talking to was suggesting that maybe the office of the Taunishta deserves um, that Leo Varadkar sort of remain to a degree above the fray. Um, today, that certainly wasn't the case. He was going to trade blows and um, that's exactly what they did. And we're joined now by David Murphy, our political coverage editor, to talk about some economic stuff. There's been so much going on with the world's central banks. Yesterday, we saw in the US the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 75 basis points. The ECB had an emergency meeting this week about Italy and they've also set out their interest rate rises over the next couple of months. What's ahead of us? Well, I think the interesting thing is, you know, obviously in the current environment, many households are under a lot of financial pressure. And now in order to try to control inflation, the central banks need to raise interest rates, which is the traditional way of controlling inflation. But what it will mean for more households particularly in countries like Ireland, where we've got relatively high mortgages, perhaps in comparison to many other countries, is that it's going to make their household finances a good deal worse. So just to put it in context, for example, if you've got a €250,000 mortgage and interest rates go up by quarter of a percent, that will add €75 Euro to your monthly bill. 
Now, what's happening is the European Central Bank has indicated it's going to put put up interest rates by quarter of a percent next month and potentially half a percent in September. So you can see automatically that's going to have a pretty big effect. What we've seen, as you mentioned, during the week, the Federal Reserve have gone for three quarters of 1% in one go, which is a huge move. They really are taking out the bazooka. The Bank of England similarly has raised rates today. So if we think back to before the financial crisis, we had interest rates of four and a quarter percent. So that's really what people were using to keep a lid on inflation. And if you talk to property developers of a certain vintage, they will say with any property project, you more or less have to calculate of over a 30-year period of having interest rates of around 5%. But because of the financial crisis, um, because central banks wanted to stimulate economies, we were in a bizarre situation where we had interest rates of zero. And for so for the past decade or more, we've been in a very unusual situation. But for many people, they think zero is normal. But unfortunately, zero is not normal. Zero is unusual. And we're going to have to go back into a more usual interest rate environment. The difficulty is it's coming at a time when household finances are under more pressure than ever before because of inflation and particularly because of higher energy prices. Is that a limitation necessarily on the ECB, which is only mandate is to look after inflation and not take into account something like the biggest war since World War II? And does that of itself just illustrate how at a European level, we're to a degree from an institutional level at sixes and sevens, if the ECB is going to do what it needs to do, because that's what its mandate says, irrespective of what the impact is going to be on householders here in Ireland who are just looking at their bills, shooting up by 10% on a monthly basis. You know, I think that um, the ECB's um, commitment and mandate to control inflation is religious. That is their number one job when you read up uh, its You'd have its to say they're not, not doing a great job on it at the moment. They've the been very slow to act. That, they, that's uh, the accusation. OK, well, there's two parts to that. The first part is that what they were doing was they effectively they were stimulating the European economy by buying bonds. And they were doing that through the financial crisis and then during the pandemic to keep everything ticking over. Uh, And then they also had interest rates at at, at zero. I think the criticism which could justifiably be leveled at the European Central Bank is that they moved too slowly to switch off the bond buying program because they couldn't continue the bond buying program and increase interest rates at the same time because it would be like having the accelerator and the brake on in the car at the same moment. So I think that's a legitimate criticism, certainly. If we look at other central banks, they are certainly moving slower than uh, other central banks. And the difficulty about that is it does affect exchange rates. In other words, capital flows to the place where the where it gets its best return. It gets its best return when interest rates are higher. So it will flow into the dollar. It's just, it's, there was, so, there was a, a tweet earlier on from Paula Tama um, from, uh, where is she from? Just to actually check, from Politico Europe. And she was saying, at Eurogroup doorsteps, that's sort of um, Eurogroup members, uh, member countries who are in the Eurozone, saying one thing is apparent, the current economic turndown isn't triggering the same response as COVID. Then we were all in the same boat. Now, hawks telling their high debt peers to bring your budgets into order. So when the squeeze comes on from the ECB and the rates go up, we're not going to get any sympathy or assistance from our European partners. That tweet would suggest, which once again is going to be pressure on the government 
to do something with fewer resources. Okay, so the one thing they can't control here is they can't control the response by the bond market. And that's critical for countries like Ireland because, you know, we have a relatively high uh, national debt. And if you look at what's happened to our cost of borrowing at the beginning of the year, it was zero. This afternoon, it's 2.47%, so 2.5%. So imagine for a moment that, you know, in your mortgage, that suddenly the um, interest rate went up by two and a half percent, you'd know all about it. Now, in the case of Ireland, because we've locked in a lot of interest rates on the money we've already borrowed, it doesn't matter so much. But when we go back out into the market to borrow money again, we're going to be paying a lot more for it. The European Central Bank, to a certain extent, can't control the response of the bond market uh, in this kind of environment in a sense that it will be private investors who say, well, look, I'm not really going to lend money to Italy or I'm not going to lend money to another country and therefore those bond rates will creep up. So there's a different dynamic going on there. But the Eurogroup, in other words, may may not... Um or was at least open to them, uh, not to be as tetchy when it came to fiscal rules and to sort of look the other way if people needed to do things in order to calm the nerves of the electorate. What that suite will be suggesting is, no, rules are rules, they're back in play, and you just have to suck it up, which once again is going to put more pressure on a government who's going to be trying to find money um, to sort of get over the, co- the spike in the cost of living. And more and instead- pressure in our government trying to put the budget together the, when absolutely. people are hurt, going to be yeah. hurting more, as, as David was saying there with the interest rate rises. So I think thanks for listening to the Your Politics podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Goodbye until next week. Mm-hmm.